we started to talk about um, where all of these issues regarding critical theory, postmodernism, where they lead to, and we dealt, uh, we started dealing with the question with regard uh, to racial reconciliation um, with um, social justice, these kinds of ways uh, or buzz terms, if you will, that are being used frequently today. And so one of the things I sought to do last week is to lay some groundwork in areas that I believe um, as Christians across the board, no matter where you stand on the specific issue of what is considered racism, what is considered the remedy for racial reconciliation, all of these kinds of questions, that there are areas where I think we find agreement. Um, but within each of those areas of agreement, there are, uh, there are more narrow categories where I think we probably find, I would say in the broader church, I know we find disagreement. And uh, so I have no um, illusion that we're going to solve all of that here this morning. Uh, but I do want to make us aware of these things, that we are thinking through these questions. And I really hope that we're honestly sitting with each other and talking through these things uh, outside of just this context here in, in Sunday school, um, but that hopefully, hopefully you've been encouraged a little bit, that at least by me putting my neck out there a little bit, uh, to talk about these things that you too will be willing to do so and to have some honest conversations, to be honest about the way you think about these things and maybe areas where you have uh, you've experienced certain um, things in your life that have uh, changed the ways that you've thought about some of these issues. Uh, maybe things that haven't happened in your life that have kept you from thinking about them in certain ways. And that was something I mentioned last week. In so many ways, our experiences in this life uh, will shape the way we think about this question. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that there are things that are true and false in this conversation that we need to take uh, very seriously and we can't waver from. But I am afraid that in, in this day, in the way the conversation is going in the church, and I don't just mean here locally, I'm talking about the church uh, of the evangelical church on the whole, the public conversation, if you will, on this issue um, sounds pretty much like the conversation that's going on everywhere else in our culture. And that's problematic. And I want to talk about uh, how that's come about. And this is in no way detached from the discussion we've been having for the last several months. Because I believe uh, that all these issues we've discussed and all the framework, the philosophical framework that undergirds all of these discussions has led to where we are today in terms of our ability or inability to have this discussion in a helpful manner and to gain some traction. Um, in many ways, I think the discussion, especially over the last 10 years, has moved a little bit backwards as opposed to forward. So, I want to, uh, this morning, I'm going to rehash the agreements, areas of agreement, but within those, I'm also going to address some of the areas where I think there are major disagreements in, uh, in the, the church uh, global. And 
Uh, again, it starts with that very, uh, at the very beginning with that word itself, racism. Uh, if you recall last week, I said I don't prefer the word racism at all. I like to use the term ethnocentrism uh, because, one, because of the connotations that something like racism brings with it in the way that it's often used, um, but also because I don't think it accurately portrays what's going on. In terms of a race, there is one race, a human race, and within that we are of numerous ethnicities. And so ethnocentrism is that one centralizes all of their thought and affection uh, for a people group in their own ethnic people group. And so it's ethno, ethnically centric, or central, centralized on um, a, a specific group. But we do, nevertheless, we, uh, as Christians, I've not met a Christian yet that's disagreed with regard to our being a people made in the image of God, uh, deserving honor, respect, and protection. We talked about that last week. Uh, we've, we've spent several weeks on that. That any, any other, uh, any notion of any kind of ethnic superiority is a, a blasphemous rejection of this idea of being created in the image of God. And so the second I begin to think whatever group I am a part of is better than any other group, I have, uh, I have denied the very way that God has created us, all mankind in his image. And so there is no place for ethnocentric thinking or action within the church at all. And we see this play out uh, through the scriptures. I think we talked a little bit last week about this, uh, a couple weeks ago maybe. In Galatians, we saw that Paul confronts Peter because he was doing that, right? When he was at the table with the Gentiles trying to sort of wade into a relationship with Gentiles after the, the barrier between the Jews and Gentiles had been broken down. And so Peter's there, but as soon as the Judaizers show up, what does Peter do? He backs away again. And Paul confronts him. He says he confronted him to his face um, and called him out for this kind of ethnocentric thinking, telling him, as he does throughout the book of Galatians, there is no place for this in the church. We are one in Christ. There, and this is where he gets into. There is no male or female or Scythian or slave or, or Jew or Gentile or slave nor free. We are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the church, we must see that. Uh, we see that also in, in James chapter 2. Remember, James is calling out the church because they're showing favoritism to uh, certain people. And there it, was, it wasn't uh, so much about their ethnicity, but more about uh, their, uh, their financial uh, goods, what they have. They were showing favoritism to the rich, and they were sort of setting aside the poor. And so we see this... Through the scriptures, we've seen it throughout history. We've seen it in the history of our own country. We've seen it in the history of our own theological tradition. But we must affirm that where bigotry based on skin color exists, it should be denounced, it should be repented of, and the church should have nothing to do with it. So where do we not agree on this specific part of the question? I think we could say that we don't agree on everything that we might individually identify as being ethnocentric or racist to the degree of which our cultural, civic, or ecclesiastical institutions are basically 
uh, either uh, blind to it, um, radicalized to it or against it, or outright just uh, very clearly um, in a place where they are um, centralizing the way they do things um, toward the benefit of one ethnic group. So where there's disagreement might be on how we define this, or when we see something happen, or we hear of something happening, we might ask different questions that bring us to a different conclusion as to whether or not this was an action, or this is an institution, or this was whatever, that we might consider it ethnocentric or racist. And I think we see that a lot, right? There's a lot of things that happen or a lot of actions that take place where some will immediately identify it and say, well, this was a racist action, while others might say, well, I don't think it is because of whatever these reasons are. And so that right there, that question right there is a big one. Um, but what you'll find with all of these things we're going to talk about is they start to get tangled up in our conversations. And so... What I'm hoping, at least, if nothing else, is we can deal with where we agree. And I don't know, I'm not saying here in this room, maybe we all agree or maybe we all disagree or maybe I'm not going to hit on an area that, you know, it, this is a big thing. But if we can identify the areas we agree and then start to talk about these specific things in specific issues where there is disagreement, I think we'll make some, some headway. But I think that's one with regard to this question. Uh, the second thing we talked about was disparities. There, historically, we have to acknowledge the fact that there have been ethnic disparities in our culture specifically. There's, there's no way around that. That is a historic fact. We can't say that that never happened. Um, with regard to anything from education to employment to income to you name it, home ownership, uh, participation in, in the highest levels of business and government and all those kinds of things. Historically, uh, in the West, that has been an issue, and we can't deny that. Now, one thing we maybe don't agree on is why those disparities have existed um, and, can, and in some ways continue today to exist. Are they because of personal choices? Are they because of cultural values? Are they because of families of origin? Are they because of um, the structures of government and what they, uh, what they create? Are they because of uh, the church and what the church is or is not doing? And even within that, we don't necessarily agree on how to close those gaps that we might identify as existing. So some would look at political, um, political measures. Others might think, well, the, the answer is in educational reform. Um, maybe the answer is just more churches. We just need more faithful churches uh, in communities. Some would say it's a combination of all of these factors. Whatever that is, um, I think that there is some agreement. I hope that we can at least say, if, if nothing else, at least historically, these disparities have existed. Statistically, we can identify um, where there are things uh, where we are not, uh, where all Westerners across the board statistically uh, may not uh, be seen as on, on the same plane 
in every issue. Now again, why that is, is the big question. Is it because of a person's ethnicity, or is it these other factors? Or are historical factors playing into that? There's a lot of questions, right? And so to just come to rapid conclusions, I think doesn't do us any favors in the church in terms of communicating with one another, once again, because we have to take each of these issues one by one. One of the examples I gave last week was, um, was that I think we can hopefully agree that a guy like Martin Luther King Jr. was someone who did a lot in terms of the civil rights movement that is worth celebrating, helping to bring an end to the Jim Crow era of what goes on in, uh, what went on in America at the time. Nevertheless, the degree to which we celebrate him, we may disagree on because the man was a theological heretic. And in addition to that was a serial philanderer and extremely unfaithful to his wife. And these, these things are not, um, these aren't debated issues. These are, within the church anyway, these are very real realities. And so uh, we, we may look at those issues and have questions about them as to how much we would look to someone like that and celebrate them inside the church. What about our own history, not just as a nation, but as uh, the West on the whole that we've talked about? We have agreed that our, I hope, our nation, our, our history has given us much to celebrate. Uh, with a foundation of Judeo-Christian principles rooted in Scripture, um, a, uh, a general consensus that all of mankind is created in the image of God and is worthy of equal uh, equal rights, that these were um, foundational ideas, uh, that people should be willing to make sacrifices for their neighbors, for their families, and to live upon uh, the Lord, that this was a general idea. Now, whether or not people believe that individually may or may not be the case, but in general, these were the, these were the foundational ideas that brought about what we have today. Now, I think an area where there would probably be disagreement within the church is, that, is whether or not our history should be remembered chiefly as one of bringing about uh, liberty and virtue for the good of the world or whether our story is more fundamentally a one uh, that, has, uh, that we can look at as being hypocritical, oppressive, and prejudiced. There's a lot of factors there. Uh, that need to be talked about, need to be discussed. And again, how are we going to talk about them? Hopefully in light of Scripture. And something like that, a question like that, and one area where we struggle to sort of let go of our own ideas about these questions is whether or not we're willing to give other people, one, the benefit of the doubt in terms of the ways they think about these things and the ways they are seeking to answer these questions based on what they've been exposed to, based on their own personal experiences. So giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And are we trusting that the gospel can and will do what the Lord says it can and will do? So, for example, if we identify that someone historically, uh, that we would say there was a very clear 
ethnic bias in that person's way of thinking and acting. And yet, they came to recognize that, and now they are understanding things in accordance with Scripture. Now, as one who has identified that, are we willing to, again, give them the benefit of the doubt and trust that now they, are, they don't have sort of this hidden agenda still, that they're still thinking in these ways or seeking to act in these ways in, uh, in, biased, in a biased manner against a people that maybe once before they, uh, they thought very unfavorably about. I think one good example of this, there's a man, there's a black gentleman, I, I don't know his name, I wish I did, but... Um, he made it his uh, goal that he was going to go uh, places where the Ku Klux Klan was still active and sit down and start meeting with some of the Ku Klux Klan leaders because he just wanted to hear from them, hear what they thought and why they thought these things. Uh, so he would sit with them, meet with them, have coffee with them, and, and talk about some of these things and, and ask them, you know, why, why do you think this way about me? And yada, yada, yada. Well, since he started doing that, Again, I, I wish I had looked this up. I'm just now remembering it. But uh, there have been many, I don't even want to put a number on it, uh, but there have been many members, even high-ranking members of the Klan, who have walked away from what they were doing, have walked away from what they were because they've identified in a relationship with this man that this is someone who I have hated just because of what he looked like, and yet in my interaction with him, in my conversation with him, uh, realized that he's nothing like what I assumed he would be. And even in that, uh, have seen uh, true conversion come about. True Christian conversion, embracing the gospel and walking faithfully with the Lord. That's, that's a big thing. Now, I think the, the difficult thing is to look at a situation like that for someone who would identify what they're doing, I hope all of us identify what the Klan does as evil. Um, and I'll fight you over that if you don't think that's true. Um, <laughs> but to identify what they're doing as evil and yet someone come out of that, if we uh, can, again, give the benefit of the doubt and trust that the Lord has truly done a work in their lives and their hearts to change them, or do we assume that maybe this is one area? And one of the... One of the things I see about this conversation that is often the case is a lot of times we're just not, it's almost like we're saying this is one area where I don't think the Lord is really going to change you all the way. And so you hear that come out in, um, in conversations and statements like you'll hear people say sometimes, well, uh, everyone is, uh, is racist whether they think they are or not. Well, that's a silly statement, isn't it? If I've been, again, transformed by the radical power of the gospel, can I believe that the gospel is powerful and effective even in that area, even if that existed in a really uh, big way in my life at one point in time? It's not, of course, just about taking off the robe and the hood. It's about how the gospel changes a person's heart. Yeah, again just to make sure that it's within the right category. For one who holds onto a, uh, a perspective based in critical race theory, they would say that um, it's just a matter of degree in terms of uh, how a person thinks and what they think. So 
okay, good, the guy left the clan, uh, but he's still part of a dominant ethnic group and therefore um, is still racist regardless of what happens. And like you're saying, the, what the gospel does is it challenges all of that thinking and says, don't think of people in terms of what group they're in or you want to put them in. Think of them as individuals. Individuals created in the image of God, individuals who are sinful, broken, and in need of salvation. And in doing so, then I can evaluate every single person in light of that truth as opposed to, well, you, uh, where do you rank on the scale of intersectionality? Well, you're a white, Christian, conservative, heterosexual male who goes to church every Sunday and makes a certain amount of money um, which means, therefore, that you are racist whether you think you are or not. Or vice versa. We can change that. You're a, uh, you, are, uh, you are a poor black uh, male who lives in, uh, in government-assisted housing and didn't graduate high school, grew up with a single parent. And, um, and so as a result of that, I assume um, you deal drugs, you, um, you're going to leave your children, you're going to continue on welfare, whatever. It's equally as, you see, they're equally as problematic because what am I doing? I'm lumping individuals into a group and saying, because maybe we've seen people that we could identify with this group as thinking or doing certain things in a certain way that everyone in that group is that way. And it, it is contrary, completely contrary to what the Bible calls us to, Derek. Yeah, Amen. Just you saying all that, I was thinking you mentioned a conservative Christian family in Washington State, and that immediately, like, that, does that even exist? <laughs> so, you know, we have, there's so many areas we can look at and say, oh, I have, I have these conceptions based on what I think has so infiltrated our ways of thinking. Now, this is all, I shouldn't say all, but a, a big part of what critical theory has done is sort of keyed in on the things that are, are our natural instincts as sinful human beings. Not as redeemed people, but as sinful people. Uh, to, to just highlight those and, and put a magnifying glass over them so that um, now we really key in on them. And so, mankind has always uh, sort of thought of people in terms of their group identity. But critical theory has now come along and say, not only do we do that, we should do that. And that's the big shift, is that it's not that we do, it's that we should. And so what happens when you have critical theory, uh, postmodern thought, outwardly what the conversation is, is that we should celebrate diversity, we should celebrate inclusivity and all these things we've talked about, but what are they actually doing? They're creating an environment where they're actually calling for more division and more isolation. It's the exact opposite of what we're talking about right now. The second I start identifying groups, and then, then certain groups get certain privileges or rights that other groups do not. Well, I thought that's what we were trying to eliminate. And so if we're going to eliminate those, then we don't think about people continually in terms of what group they're in, but as, uh, as opposed to that, what are the fundamental realities of us being human beings? Again, as Christians, created in the image of God. And from that, what are our rights and privileges as people? Not as 
certain types of people. Right? We, we can think of, I gave you an example last week of a conversation I had with, uh, with a Nigerian woman in Atlanta. She's Igbo. She hates Yoruba people. And she let me know in no uncertain terms I shouldn't have anything to do with them because they're dishonest and disloyal and everything else. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Caleb, that as you think through this sort of intersectionality scale that we've talked about from postmodern thought, um, the lower you rank on that scale in terms of um, your, uh, your determined privilege or whatever, um, the more likely it is that the things that you say and do will never be considered to be racist, never be considered to be something that should be called out or because you are uh, in Marx's terms you are of an oppressed class and therefore never know how can anything you say or do be considered anything other than you being able to define the parameters of the conversation or the situation right right and that's a few weeks back we talked about that uh, as depending on where you are uh, on that scale, you become the authority because the oppressed is the authority on the circumstance, right? Because we're trying to overthrow the power structure, remember. Um, <clears throat> I think a big thing for the church to talk about is the question of corporate responsibility. I'm not talking about corporations, I'm talking about collective. What is our collective responsibility in this conversation? I think we can agree as Christians that it's appropriate for Christians in some situations, for Christian institutions, churches, denominations, seminaries, whatever, uh, to, uh, to rebuke and to repent uh, collectively, corporately, uh, because of uh, the failures of a corporate entity, whatever that is. So, for example, the Old Testament prophets often denounce the nation of Israel uh, even though the individuals within the nation were certainly, there were many who were living in holiness and integrity, walking faithfully with the Lord, um, not rebelling against God in the ways that the prophets were saying they were. And yet, what did the Lord do? He rebuked and judged the entire nation, right? Even though there were people within uh, that weren't. So we see that, uh, remember Daniel offered a prayer of confession for his people, even though he personally, it doesn't by any uh, way seem as though he was personally responsible of the guilt of the sins that he was confessing. Um, in the New Testament, we see the Jews held responsible for Christ's death, even though some of the Jews, his disciples being some of them, uh, followed Jesus faithfully and lamented his death, right? But when we see who's responsible for this, uh, it was pronounced by Peter. Uh, he said that you, Jewish people, me being one of them, killed Jesus, so there's this corporate responsibility that comes about, and we see that through Scripture. Where we may not agree on that, though, is, is when and how and in how many situations whether this accountability and repentance should take place. It has been something that has gone on very recently. Uh, I know in the Southern Baptist Convention there was a corporate statement of responsibility and repentance. In the uh, Presbyterian Church of America, the PCA, there was very recently um, that was accomplished... Um, at Southern Seminary, a statement came out 
uh, from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, dealing with these things and the, the historical ramifications of this for their seminary. Um, and on and on. There's a lot of discussion about this in terms of um, are, are the people in those institutions today, are they the people who, um, who did the things, said the things that were being done and said in a day when this was a very clear and present reality? Uh, no. Most of those, I think probably all of those people are dead and gone. And yet, um, as an institution, it was never dealt with. So how should that institution deal with that? And I think that's a question that is necessary to work through and to answer and to talk about. And were our local church older than it is, um, that's likely a question that I think we would need to deal with. I think there are churches in our local churches in our community in our broader area that probably need to at least think about that. Now, we may or may not agree with the conclusion, but at least talk about it and think about whether or not that's something we need to, uh, we need to address. Um, Another question, and something that comes up quite frequently in this discussion, is a question of systemic injustice. And by that, what is meant is, is there a system that has been established in which it is considered acceptable that certain injustices uh, take place or have taken place? Um, I think what we can agree on, that it is possible for systems and structures to be unjust, even when the people inhabiting those systems and structures may not have personal animus in their hearts. I think we have to acknowledge that it is a possibility that it can exist. Historically, it has existed. What we may not agree on is whether or not the disparities themselves include or indicate systematic and structural injustices. And so likewise, we don't agree maybe that what the best remedies are uh, if we identify certain things. Do we identify them and say immediately, this is systemic? How do we determine that? How do we make a judgment call on that? There's a lot of uh, questions about that. So let me give you an example outside. This maybe help, um, one way to talk about this, maybe diffuse the the tension of the, the ethnic question, but If you remember recently, um, the shaving company Gillette had this uh, crazy commercial where they were calling out toxic masculinity. Uh, I think it was crazy. Maybe you liked it. Uh, But I don't, did everyone see that? Has everyone seen the commercial or know what I'm talking about? Okay. Uh, So they they had a commercial, you know, for years and years, Gillette's uh, ad has been the best a man can get. Well, you know that's a lie already. They're encouraging men to shave their beards. So, (laughs) nevertheless... That was their ad. Uh, Part of that then was this ad where you have, for example, uh, little boys out in the yard wrestling each other. They got in a little spat and they started to fight and roll around on the ground together. And, uh, And this is an example of people, boys at a young age starting to develop this toxic masculinity. And so the remedy to that was uh, one of the dads running over and breaking them up and, and getting down on his knee and talking with them about why they shouldn't do that or whatever, whatever. <clears throat> okay. Um, there was another one of uh, 
uh, two guys were walking out of, the, out of a store and a pretty lady walks by and one of them kind of turns and looks at her and goes to turn to his buddy and say, you know, and, and his buddy goes, hey man, that's not cool. You know, some of those things. So they're, um, again, well, look at this and say, okay, is there some, does there need to be, for example, uh, especially among Christian brothers, some accountability that we're not doing something like looking at girls in that way? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's an important element to that that we need to look at and say that's good. But to take that now and to ramp that up to say, well, this is really speaking to something systemic, this is an issue that spans across mankind. If you're a man that lives in the West, you are, you are a part of this toxic masculine culture. Uh, well, uh, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the issue, right? That this has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, well, there, I think Venus razors have gone through the roof now. That also made by Gillette, by the way. Um, but why, why now? Why in 2019 is Gillette wanting to say something about this sort of issue? Well, it's very simple, right? Because the demasculinization of our culture is in full effect, right? The idea of a man being a man who's not effeminate um, is, uh, is offensive to a culture that continues to say that what masculinity is, is actually harmful and oppressive. And so we, as a corporate entity, a business, need to make clear that we don't stand with those kinds of guys. We want the guys who really want to shave because they can't grow facial hair in the first place. (laughs) Sorry if that's you. (laughs) Drink more coffee and eat more bacon. It helps every time. But right, that's, that's the kind of ways that this, is, this happens, right? So that same kind of thinking then gets taken over into a conversation about skin color, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, we see this, all these ideas we've talked about. Why, this is a question I've thought a lot about. Why today, why in our day and age when in my mind, in my at least how I think. Everything, I don't want to live. There is no better time to live. And in the middle of that, there is no better place to live. <laughs> we have the best time and the best place in the history of the world. Um, are there problems? Yeah, there's problems. There's always going to be problems. We're sinful people. Um, but with that being said, like, why have these things reached a fever pitch to the way that they have, it seems, in many ways today? And I think that's part of it is because the platforms that are offered to people are so large and so vast and so instant um, that something like that discussion, she's talking about uh, there's a heartbeat bill in Georgia uh, that um, would make it illegal to have an abortion once the heartbeat can be heard. I think I have that right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of celebrities saying, well, if that passes, we're not going to make movies in Georgia anymore. Well, Georgia is a big place uh, in terms of movie production in Savannah, but also in Atlanta. There's a massive studio up in Fayetteville where they make all the Marvel films and everything else, and these celebrities are saying, we're not going to do that. So what do you have? You have politicians uh, looking at that and saying, well, we're, 
uh, we, we maybe need to rethink our position. The same thing happened in North Carolina when, uh, when the governor there said, I'm not going to change the, the issue with, uh, with the bathroom issue. And so the NCAA said, well, we're not going to play uh, our, our games in North Carolina anymore as a result of that. All because of these platforms. And again, what are we doing? We're lumping all those people and saying, those people in Georgia... Those people in North Carolina, they think this way, therefore we can't and shouldn't have anything to do with them. Yeah. Right. It's, the, it's, a, it's always, I shouldn't say always, but almost always a very vocal minority. And often a very vocal minority dealing with an issue that, um, uh, that only addresses a very small minority. So we've talked about the transgender issue here. Uh, very recently, and <laughs> what percentage of the population are we talking about of people who experience what psychologists would call gender dysphoria? This is like less than 0.01% of the population. But then all of a sudden, it's a national conversation where um, now entire states are being boycotted because of the issues that came out of that. So, um, if I hope we see this whole issue of group, grouping people by certain identities uh, is such a harmful thing that we must, we must maintain as Christians. That the issue is the heart dealing with individuals created in the image of God, sinful people in need of salvation, and in doing so, in God saving a people, he brings about unity, crushes disparity, uh, that is unjust and brings about unity and love in the church. Did you? Right. Money, influence, platform. One of my, and I'll end here, one of my criticisms of some prominent evangelicals today on these specific issues is that I think many of them have opinions on these issues uh, that they will never share for that very reason. Because this is an uncomfortable conversation. Let's, let's be clear about that. This isn't something that, on the wide scale, anyone wants to talk about because the second you do, no matter what position you take, you're going to be attacked, uh, especially if it's uh, more public. Um, so, instead of losing any form of notoriety or platform, I'm just not going to talk about it. And so what is, that's not healthy for the church at all. Um, the Lord wants us to think about the Word, apply the truth of the Bible, and expose everything to the light of the Gospel. And if we can't do that, uh, then we're in a bad place. Josh, Russ will be done. Church in Georgia seeking to identify all people as people created in the image of God. That would cause a terrible uproar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that's exactly. Why does the church take on a position that looks a whole lot like critical theory and postmodernism? Because we're afraid of men more than we fear God. Really what it comes down to at the end of the day.